Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk with iFixit CEO Kyle Weens about technical writing, generating repair guides, and retaining the right to repair. Along the way, we also cover repair kits, pentalobe bits, and the need for a slinky fix. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 127, Technical Writing, March 6, 2017. Not too long ago, we received a letter from James, a senior in mechanical engineering at the University of North Florida, who asked us to discuss technical writing. Uh, We decided this was a good idea, as engineers spend a lot of time communicating technical matters, and writing is certainly an effective means of communication. So we're going to discuss technical writing in a few minutes. Uh, First, however, we wanted to catch up on some past episodes. In episode 111, Environmental Engineering, we talk with Bronwyn Bell, an environmental engineer from Western Australia. She mentioned her work investigating pot marks known as fairy circles in the Australian outback. Well, it turns out that she is now featured in an episode of the Discovery Channel show, What on Earth? And so we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to view uh, Bronwyn's appearance on that show. Uh, in episode 115, we talked about bearings and linked to a video showing how one bearing would spin a lot longer than another. And listener Matthew wrote in to say that lubrication could have a large effect on how long a bearing might spin, and that simply comparing spin times was not a sufficient means for evaluating bearing quality. Uh, he pointed us to the ABEC standard for bearing quality, and we'll share that link uh, in our show notes. Finally, in our last episode, we pondered how diesel fuel was refined, and via Twitter, CAD, C-A-D, noob, shared a short film from 1946 that he found on archive.org titled The Inside Story of Gasoline, uh, in which we learned that carbon atoms are little dots that float around and have four arms and grab onto the hydrogen atoms that only have two arms and thereby make links into gasoline and diesel fuel and lubricating oil. So uh, some very exciting viewing for our listeners. Wonderful stuff. I'm real glad uh, Bronwyn got her start on the Engineering Commons and now she's in the big leagues. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) All that success just attributed to us. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, tonight we have a a real special guest. Uh, We have Kyle Wine, the CEO of iFixit, which is an organization I'm sure needs no introduction to our crowd. I mean, who among us hasn't killed time at work uh, oogling HD photos of motherboards when they should be working instead? (laughs) <laughs> and we have Kyle here. You laugh. Tonight. I've actually re- looked at pretty much every iFixit teardown. I've looked at a good <laughs> good portion of them. I, I can't get enough of it. Checking out. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Who, who's using what and what chips are where and how they laid stuff out. It, it's great. And we have Kyle here tonight. He's going to talk to us, uh, you know, about iFixit, about technical writing. Uh, you may have heard something about the right to repair bills that have been going around recently. Uh, and just getting your hands dirty in general. So, Kyle, welcome to the Engineering Commons. We're happy to have you on with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. All right. Uh, we'll start you up with a, a softball question. 
What are you drinking tonight? Coffee, tea, <laughs> booze? We don't discriminate. I got nothing. <laughs> Not even a water? <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Didn't plan ahead. Uh, next time, next time. Yeah, I hear you guys got the. I didn't know this was the gin and tonics on the <laughs> oh, on the engineering comments. I'll I'll do better next ah, time. Not a problem. We'll we'll have you on for season two, and it'll be it'll be much better. <laughs> By that point, our budget will come in, and we can all meet in a pub somewhere. Right there, you go. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, un- unlike uh, most of our guests that we've had on the show uh, who went to school for, you know, some, one of the sciences or engineering, uh, you started as a CS major in the past life. Did you always want to go that route? You know, or did you catch the knack, you know, from Dilbert back in a past life? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I mean, my grandfather was a mechanical engineer, so I always had like an interest in, in mechanical things, but I wanted... Uh, I mean, I guess I wanted to understand how things worked all the way up, and I felt like I had a bit of a grasp on mechanical things. I wanted to know about, more about software, and so one of the cool things about going through a computer science degree is we actually got to build a computer in software, and then and then implement it in hardware, and see like from the gates all the way up how it worked. And I, so I, I, being able to know like I can write code, but I can also like see how it would be implemented at the hardware level it was kind of an exciting understanding. Um, as I mean, so much software these days is completely abstract. So it's nice to see the full stack. Yeah. And it sounds like you were pretty low level in school as opposed to coding the internet or something. I mean, we do it all, but there's a couple classes where like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, do gate logic, do Carnot maps and, and figure this whole thing out. And then, yeah, it was, it was fun. If I remember correctly, uh, the, digital logic class in Carnot maps was everybody's least favorite course of the CS majors I knew. Yeah, it was it was totally fine. Not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> so I've always been a bit on the hardware side because with iFixit, you know, we're taking things apart, we're learning how things work, uh, and we teach people. So I'm about as hardware-y as you can get and be a software engineer. Nice. So I tell you, you were probably on the side, you know, still pulling apart stuff in your dorm room as you coded with the other hand. Yeah, I, t- I took my computer apart to fix it. We were building robots. Yeah, everything that we could do the to tinker. And that's, I mean, that that kind of love of seeing what's inside things is what's kind of driven i fix it because we get every new gadget gadget when it comes out we take it apart and we're like hey what's inside what makes this tick what's interesting what's different from the last model uh okay it's another you know rectangular phone but what's different about this one what's the, the cmos sensor in the camera that kind of thing mm-hmm. and here's the here's the million dollar question feel free to lie if you need to do they ever go back together and work after you're done for your teardowns absolutely they do almost always uh, it, 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 it's, it's corollary to our repairability scores. We take things apart and we talk about how it went together, what's interesting, build quality, uh, we identify components inside, but then we also, uh, give it a repairability score, which is from one to 10, how easy or hard it is to take, take apart. So something that we like that comes apart very easily might get a nine or a 10 and something that we don't like very much, like a Microsoft surface gets a one or a two. Oh, come on. <laughs> a little bit of love for the surface. Hey, you try taking apart the surface, and then I, you know, I think they're, I think they're great products uh, until you need to change out the battery, and then you wish that you got <laughs> a better tablet. Next thing I'm gonna say, my Zune isn't gonna catch on. Hey, we got we got Zune repair manuals all day long, and those were actually pretty easy to take apart. See, <laughs> told you guys. Yeah. It's not like Microsoft's other hardware is great. The the Xbox is great. It scores, I think it got a 7 out of 10. So Microsoft knows how to do good hardware, but I think that the Surface team got dropped on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of it, too, is the form factor, I'd imagine. It's hard to put a ton of repairability in something that's supposed to be no thicker than a 
you know, pamphlet. Yeah, you'd think that, but so like HP's current top tablets are much thinner than the Surface Pro, uh, and they like HP's Elite X2 got a 10 out of 10. So it's thinner, huh. it's a better product, it's got a user-replaceable battery, uh, it's just better in every way, and uh, you, you can repair it. Hmm. Well, I apparently missed a teardown, so I know what I'll be doing during my morning coffee tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. HP Elite X2, highly recommend it. This is me being a corporate shell, shill. It's a great product. Dell also <laughs> has some some pretty good repairable tablets. Um, to, not to just pick on Microsoft, the iPads are also very bad. Yes. Yeah. I've, you guys are kind of legendary for your uh, quote unquote Apple hate, according to the internet forums. <laughs> we don't, we were very objective. So it's, we come at this from an engineering perspective of we're just pulling the thing apart and analyzing it. We score the iPhone very highly. Uh, so if, if you look, Apple's products are kind of all over the place on our, on our scoring system. Some score very high, some score very low. We're uh, objectively rating the process of taking the thing apart. And not to jump too far ahead, but. Can I guess that glue has something to do with? Yes. Scores? Okay. Glue has a lot to do with it. But then, so that, I mean, there's, and there's different kinds of glue and there's whether if we, you heat the glue up and it softens, then that helps. Uh, if, if, if there's no way to soften the glue, then it's pretty much impossible to take apart. That would be like Apple's got some keyboards and trackpads that are like that, where it's completely impossible to take it apart without destroying it. With the iPads, you actually can get the glue off. Same thing with the Surface. It's just a lot of prying. But then the Surface went one further, and in addition to having glue all over it, once you get inside, there's like 70 screws between you and getting at the battery. Hmm. 70? 70 wow. screws, yeah. Which seemed seemed unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys ever go back and... Um you know, change your repairability scores. I mean, I know back when Apple introduced, you know, the Pentalobe screwdriver that you needed to get everything opened. It was a big deal because no one had them, but now they're in every, uh, you know, bit kit you can find online. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, we were the first to kind of come up with the Pentalobe screw and get it out there and put it in the repair kits. So I guess we would kind of be the ones doing that. We, we try to factor in future anticipation of how the market will change. Um, so I don't think we'd go back and revise those old iPhone uh, scorecards up, uh, but but definitely you know how available the the tools are, how available the parts are, as a factor. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes sense. With some of them, like when we first took apart, I think the iPhone 5S, it has some adhesive pull strips on the battery, and we didn't we didn't know what they were for when we pulled it apart the first time. And, and after that, after we got better at it, we were like, oh, maybe this does make it easier to pull apart because it's just a pull tab. And then, and so we were going to maybe rate them higher, but then we realized that that pull tab adhesive stops working after about 12 months. Uh, and, and so then we're like, oh, maybe we'll revise it back down. So th there's a lot that you learn over the process of doing a repair where no one, not even the product engineers, when the device first comes out, can anticipate all of the things that will happen over the device's life cycle and what will make it easier or harder to fix over time. So <clears throat> we might have gotten ahead of ourselves. How did iFixit get founded? I was trying yeah. to fix my laptop. I had a iBook clamshell. I was in the dorms at Cal Poly, and I remember I had worked as a computer repair tech in high school, making $6.50 an hour, and I bought this $1,800 laptop, and it was the only way I was getting through school, and I dropped it on the power plug. Uh, and it was, if I held it just right, it would work, and so I knew it was just a cracked solder joint on the power plug inside, and so I figured I'd try to take it apart, and I started pulling it apart, as you would do, and realized that it was kind of complicated. There were plastic tabs and latches I couldn't figure out, so I googled for a repair manual, spent a bunch of time looking, couldn't find anything. And this was odd to me, because at least my generation, I assume that if information exists, it's on the internet. 
And this yeah. particular information wasn't on the internet. So I thought that was odd. And I went <laughs> through the process of doing the repair. And then I kind of botched getting it back together. But it worked. I just didn't get all the tabs and latches quite right. And I did some more investigation. I learned that the repair manual used to be on the internet. And Apple's lawyers had sent takedown notices and demanded it get yanked off. Uh, and so that was kind of the beginning of I fix it. It was like, wow, Apple doesn't want people to know how to fix things. That's kind of bullshit. Let's see if we can do something about it. But this was an internally generated Apple repair manual, and right. they didn't this want is, people to have it? They didn't want anybody to have it. And to this day, if you post an Apple service manual online, you get a nasty leather from their lawyers. So like all good adventures, it started out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> Effectively. I mean, all the engineering you know, frustration is, all right, well, if they're not going to let me do it, I'll do it a different way. So I figured I'll just write my own manual. And the nice thing about being young and stupid is that you don't know what's not possible. Right. Mm-hmm. And nobody had told me, you can't write a repair manual for somebody else's thing. And so I did it. Uh, and uh, kind of been at it ever since. Yeah. And some say you certainly lead the way in that regard. I've heard stories of, you know, I, I do power electronics on all sorts of devices. Used to be uh, notebooks and tablets and all that stuff. Now it's more server side. But um, yeah, I'd heard stories about you know, you'd get a laptop from a customer and, oh, how do I take this apart? Well, just pull up the iFixit guide. It's good enough. Right. And that's where where we can. I mean, the goal is to be comprehensive. So our mission now is to teach everybody how to fix everything. And yeah, we so. have thousands and thousands of repair guides online, things created by us, by our community. And we're comprehensive across a number of categories of electronics. So like with Apple yeah. products, we have complete – Apple actually is the only manufacturer in the world with open source complete visual repair manuals online for every product they sell. Of course, they, all generated, they, by, they, all generated by us, either for <laughs> them or to them, depending on how you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never had a problem using one of your guides, you know, take apart some of these laptops. So either you guys are just, they, people know you're going to do it. So they don't write their own or they use yours instead of having to send their stuff out with the secret sauce in it. I think they do ours. What I hear from the Apple geniuses is that, I mean, they still, Apple still writes manuals, but ours are better sometimes. And so they use ours sometimes <laughs> and Apple sometimes. I mean, aside from the occasional genius comment or Apple genius comment, do you ever get any internal editorial comments from uh, engineers at Apple? Not that I can talk about. Uh, I, oh, okay. <laughs> we, we did, uh, there was one, uh, we did an April Fool's joke a couple years ago where we said that Apple was purchased by us. Uh, mm-hmm. And it turns out, or I'm sorry, we were purchased by Apple. It's going to go that direction. Uh, and uh, we put up a big, you know, replaced our web page with, you know, iFixit logo plus Apple, you know, better together. I remember we this. We gonna, this was pretty funny. We were going to replace our repairability score with a replaceability index. <laughs> How easy your heart is to just throw away your product and replace it. So this is all well and good. So we got we got two reactions uh, uh, from this. One was we had a whole bunch of people set up web crawlers, crawling iFixit and trying to archive all the content because they were terrified <laughs> it was going to go away. <laughs> and then we got calls from people at Apple saying, hey, are we still going to be able to buy tools from you? <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> so we sell them a lot of tools. Uh, actually, I mean, we know that like Apple's industrial design team uses our tools. So we're fairly heavily utilized internally. I mean, you can look at our server logs and see. I mean, every office of Apple is using iFixit regularly. That's hilarious. One question I've always had about you guys is how do you source uh, um, replacement parts for Apple components? We get them from the same people Apple does. 
What? So it goes straight to the to the source. Sometimes if we're not buying enough volume, then we're buying from a broker. But you know, Apple's not making batteries; they're buying them from other folks. Uh, some but- some parts like circuit boards, we can't right, and mm-hmm. so we'll go to electronics recyclers and we'll get boards from recyclers. Uh, and like displays. Displays, same thing. We we sell we sell both OEM displays, and a lot of times those are either recycled. Sometimes we can get original displays. There's also we sell aftermarket displays where that's their their LCDs that are made in a different factory than originally, and that's just because they're a lot less expensive. So it kind of comes down to what people want to pay for. Um, but then everything that we get, we test here. Uh, we run through an extremely rigorous process, and then we have a, a, a lifetime warranty on all of our parts. And I can say I've used at least three of your screens. I'm thinking if it's more than that, it might be. But you have kept several generations of iPhone 5 and 5Ss alive in my house. Well, wonderful. Good job. (laughs) Yeah, and that's anything that we can do because we look at the environmental impact that comes from manufacturing these things. And if we can take a cell phone and and make it last three years instead of 18 months, that's a really big win. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed I got to start looking at a, a camera module for my phone to see if you guys have it in stock, which I'm, I'm sure you do. I got a big scratch on the lens. So is the would you say the iPhone first generation was one of your first really high-profile teardowns? We were fairly, we were the biggest, I think, Apple parts supplier before the iPhone came mm-hmm. out. So the site, I mean, we've been around since 2003, and the... the okay. uh, the iPhone, I guess, is 2006, 2007. So we were doing fairly well before then. Um, it, the original iPhone did well for us. Intriguingly, it was normally we have this kind of bell curve of part sales that starts usually really in earnest about 12 months after the product came out in the market. Mm-hmm. And with the original iPhone, we started selling parts for it a lot sooner than that. And the reason was that the first jailbreak for the iPhone actually required taking the phone apart and shorting two pins inside. And the process of disassembling the original iPhone was very, very challenging. If you look at our, if you go to ifix.com slash smartphone underscore repairability, it's got kind of our list of all the phones. And the iPhone 7 right now gets a 7 out of 10. It's very highly rated. The original iPhone got a 2 out of 10. It's very, very hard to take apart. Uh, and so everybody in the process of taking it apart to jailbreak it, broke it, and then bought the repair parts from us to fix it so they could get back together. <laughs> you guys are kind of like the mob in that regard. You're telling them how to take it apart and, break it, and then buy the parts. Uh, yeah, so you'd think we'd be incentivized to have them break it in the process of falling Yeah, behind. Yeah, forget about that one plastic retaining tab. Right. And, uh, oh, now you need a new housing. Not the oh. case at all. We really iterate on the instructions to make sure people do it right. Step nine, pull until you hear a crack. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then give me your money. Yeah. <laughs> so while you were coming up with iFixit and turning it into a, a viable business, did you stay to finish and get your degree or did you become one of those, you know, genius dropouts we hear about? Yeah, my parents were helping me pay for school, so they would have killed me if I dropped out. So I, I stuck around. I, I, I did it fast, though. I graduated in three years and then went on to focus on iFixit. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm really indebted. I had this. It's, it's, Cal Poly is a phenomenal engineering university. They've got one of the best computer science school uh, programs in the country. Second rated architecture school in the world. It's a, it's a really good school. Nice. So did, did you do this all yourself or did they have like a 
you know, a startup club or, you know, some program that you could join. Yeah, they've got all that now. So they've got all kinds of incubators and startup programs. But no, this was this was us in the dorms uh, just, you know, taking things apart and selling parts. And we didn't find out until later that there was actually a clause in the dorm housing contract that said it was it was against the rules to run a business out of the dorms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was So that's why it I fix it as like owned by Cal Poly at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much too late for us to stop. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I know I've personally used some of your uh, manuals. They've all been great so far. Well, and so for us, it's about, it's kind of a meta level where on the one hand, we're writing some manuals, but I fix it as a community where anybody can contribute. So, you know, there's a few things I know how to fix. There's probably more things that you know how to fix. And if we share what we know in one place, then everybody that kind of doesn't have to go through the pain. Because it's that first time you take something apart that you're going to break it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have a friend that's a mechanic, and he says, hey, if I know I need to pull apart all the doors on a car, the first door I pull apart, I know I'm going to break some tabs or latches. Uh, and then the, the other three doors, I know how to take them apart. And then I go and I buy the parts to fix the first door, and then I'm good. <laughs> right. And I think that's exactly. a very common experience. So the idea of you know, having a repairman guide online is that you can see what you're getting into ahead of time. So somebody else broke it instead of you. Yeah. Yeah. In my case, it was, I was fixing my, uh, second generation iPad and just knowing it was possible, you know, what, that was the biggest hurdle to overcome then basically. Right. But I mean, it's still, that's not an easy repair. So you did well. Uh, Yeah. No, I didn't have to pull it all the way apart. I got kind of lucky. I dropped it and it hit a corner and it, uh, dented the case right by the volume rocker and kind of got it stuck. So it was always, uh, on basically I was pushing the button and I used your guide to figure out how to heat the screen up and prop it open so I could bend back the case a little bit. There you go. Yeah. But you can imagine trying to do that without having instructions. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't even have known where to start. Yeah. I, and I probably wouldn't have thought to get the hairdryer and right. point it at the uh, <laughs> at the uh, screen for a little while. And there are certain parts. So you've got the digitizer, you've got the glass, and then there's glue all the way around the edge, and you got to go in and basically cut the adhesive after you heat it up. But there are some thin ribbon cables in uh, underneath the bezel. And if you don't know exactly where those cables are, you cut them. Yes. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that, like, it doesn't matter how good a technician you are, you're going to break the first one you take apart without the information. Just because you don't know. There's no yeah. way to know. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see a rise? I'm, I'm sure you guys track this sort of thing, uh, whether or not they contribute to iFixit, but just, you know, the whole uh, YouTube repair guide in general. Did you see an uptick after you guys kind of got going and got your name out there? Did that people started copying you? or Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount. Separate? It's You can definitely see our photography style has been emulated. Um, <laughs> I mean, Sony does teardowns now. Before, before they release their products, they do teardowns, and they kind of copy our photography style. So... Um, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to get more people out there fixing things. YouTube is definitely blown up. I mean, there's a huge amount of repair information on YouTube. The challenge is just getting, getting at the good stuff. There's, there's a lot of clutter on there. There's a lot of, uh, good procedures, bad procedures. The biggest problem I have conceptually with YouTube is we publish videos on YouTube and if we publish a video and then we find that we made a mistake, which happens, uh, there's no way to fix it. There's no way to delete the video and, and upload a new one without losing all the comments and views and placement of that mm-hmm. video. Uh, and I think that that's a fundamentally incorrect approach to any kind of technical documentation. You have to provide a ba- path to making it better. Yep. Now, YouTube is doing it because they know 
on popular videos, people are going to game the system, but and like get a video popular and then insert ads in the middle. That's what they're afraid of, uh, and that's this is really the problem with merging a popular consumption medium of YouTube with a technical communication format, which is really what we need when we're talking about repair. Yeah. Well, so I was noticing, Kyle, that I'm old enough to uh, remember what technical documentation looked like, you know, 30 years ago photographs were so expensive and so hard to replicate that everything was done as a drawing, you know, so you'd hire illustrators to come in, you'd take a photo of the thing you wanted illustrated and someone would draw the thing out. Um, and and I, I, you know, I look at all the photos, the nice photos on your site. I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, that would have been impossible, uh, without the advent of the internet where you could easily share, uh, the photographs. And so the, so the other part, now that I've taken that stroll down memory lane, uh, the question I wanted to get to was how do you maintain consistency? If you have various people authoring and very various people contributing, uh, to your guides, you know, you have a fairly consistent style of, of, uh, writing and a fairly consistent style of photography. How do you maintain that? Well, you don't necessarily always, and, and we have to be okay with that. So as the community adds guides, they're going to add it in different formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, with car repair guides, you're not going to have the, a white background on car repair. Mm-hmm. It's just, <laughs> it would be dumb. <laughs> it would be a terrible idea. Don't even try. Uh, and so we found other people come in with, with, with their own style. But what we did do is we standardized on the format. So if okay. you think about sitting down and saying you're going to write a manual, you got to you got to figure out what content you're going to write, you got to figure out what photos you're going to take, and then you got to figure out the format uh, that you're going to to lay it out in. Um, and the formatting piece is what a lot of people struggle. If you sit down, you're an engineer, and you sit down and do work instructions to write how you're going to you know assemble the widget that you've designed. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to write. I'm going to take some pictures, but do I do this in Word? Do I do it in PowerPoint? We see a lot. Uh, and so for us, it was really providing a content management system uh, that's designed for step-by-step instructions. Uh, and so like the photos might be different. Some community photos might be different. But in general, it's usually hands in the shot, and there is a step, and there is a series of bullets next to the step. Right. And then people can comment on individual steps and you can actually take a series of steps and you can reuse them in a number of other guides. So if you have a computer and you need to remove the upper case before you can get at everything else, you might have 10 steps to remove the upper case and then you could do any of a number of procedures. Those 10 steps are reusable in a number of other guides. And that's the kind of thing, if you, if you were doing it in Word, you'd be spending a lot of time copying and pasting your procedures or like hot linking back and forth. Right. Fixing the weird formatting issues from copying and pasting. Correct. And- Right. So the idea is instead get it in one place, make it available on iFixit. And actually, since we did it on iFixit, and we've gotten pretty good at, at, at creating um, uh, the content management system is pretty good. We had a lot of manufacturers come to us and say, "Hey, iFixit is awesome for repair information. Can I use it for manufacturing work instructions or quality control or something like that?" And so we launched a software tool called Dazuki that's basically iFixit. It's the content management system behind iFixit, but it's it's specifically for engineers. Uh, and you can set up a private site or if you need to be behind a firewall because you're in the defense industry or something, it's good at that. Good for that. Wow. Fantastic. And, and so how many, how many waxes did it take to sort of get it right? 
Well, our first stab was a paper manual, but we figured we were going to do full-color paper. Uh, And so we had photos and and bullets to the right of it. So kind of the concept of a series of steps with photos and text uh, was there originally. But it took me a solid 10 years to build a good content management system that was a wiki that enabled – I mean, we got something working within two two years, but then I've been iterating it on on it ever since. So it's mobile-friendly. You can add comments. Uh, if I write a guide and you want to make a change to it, there's a process for me to go and review and approve your changes so that okay. it's not just chaos. People aren't making these things worse all the time. <laughs> right. One of the common things, so you have a repair manual with an edit button, and what people do is they click edit and they delete the manual and they replace it with the text, help, my phone is broken. <laughs> it's like, well, it's, that's how you escalate it, right? Right. So rule number one of a user interface on iFixit is that if there's a text box, people are going to type their problem into it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you see that all over the internet. Right. So uh, it's our goal to you know create a process to allow it to filter the idiots out, to take the smart people and, and elevate their information and, and provide a path where this information gets better over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I just want to iterate there or include that uh, we have never received a terrible comment from our feedback on our site. All you listeners are great people. <laughs> <laughs> You're the exception that proves the rule. Well, it's been re- – <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes, you know, I, I feel like engineers get a bad rap for, for the documentation they create. I, I, was, uh, I was changing out the – It's usually done under the gun. <laughs> done under the gun, done oftentimes before you have a real product. Uh, so like maybe a reason that you have vector illustrations is because you didn't have a product to take photos of when you're writing the manual because it didn't exist yet. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the product just changes over time. Uh, I was uh, changing out the headlight bulb in my Honda the other night, and uh, it turns out that there's one bolt that rusts after you've had the car for 10 years. Uh, and instead of it being a simple job of just pulling the headlight out, I had to remove the headlight assembly, which meant that I had to remove the front bumper, which like <laughs> turned into, oh, I thought it was going to be a 10-minute job. I say, okay, this is a several-hour project. This is not a Sunday evening project. And the, I had the shop workshop manual for this Honda Civic, and you know, it's not really the uh, designer's fault who wrote the manual 10 years ago. Like The bolt wasn't corroded at that point. But now most of the folks who have this car have a corroded bolt. And so the correct service manual for that car now is different than the correct service manual when the product was created. Yep. So fundamentally, part of creating technical documentation is you have to plan for that life cycle. You have to plan for a path for people to make it better. And at some point, the expert on that process stops being the engineer who designed the product, and it starts being the people who are out there in the field doing repairs, doing maintenance. And so really you need to transition the responsibility or the ownership of maintenance away from the original author and off onto the community or the, the intended recipients. Yeah, that's why um, at some of the bigger companies I've done co-ops and everything at, there's been a sustaining engineering group that, you know, after X number of years in production, they, they're responsible for fixing any faults and updating documentation as needed. Right. That's that's exactly it, and and you, yeah. you have to you have to support it. So one of the things that we built in, I mean, we built a wiki, but we also made it really easy to maintain and improve you know, and manage the life cycle. And some guides, like that iPad two guide that you followed, we've probably rewritten that manual from scratch. I'd say five times. Oh wow, really? 
Uh, we just, we kept, like, we would get feedback. I mean, it, it, people would use the guide and then they'd say, well, or we'd get feedback if they broke it or it took too long. And, and so we're constantly coming up with new and different techniques. We're in the process now of going back and rewriting some of our MacBook Pro Retina guides because we think we've got a better way to remove the adhesive. Hmm. Do you guys find you update it more? Obviously, you do. You just said you did. Um, you find you update it more as the product's been out longer and people run into these issues that you'd never considered when it was new. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or you know, things change. I, I know it's interesting with the iPhone uh, 6. It turns out that over time you get so the process of opening is you have a suction cup and then you lift it open. If you get dust in around the edge of the screen, when you can lift the screen open, it can crack because the dust shears, uh, shears the glass. And that's something that never happens on new phones, but happens very commonly with one to two-year-old phones. Mm-hmm. And who, who would have thought dust would be able to break a smartphone? Right. Right. <laughs> so has the community ever led to... Uh a new engineer or documentation expert being hired at iFixit? Have you hired from your comment pool? Absolutely we do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's kind of how we've grown is, you know, we get good folks that approach us, either we, com- we promote them to be a moderator and then hire them. Yeah, I mean, we hire uh, engineers all over the place. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, our biggest audience is with electrical and mechanical engineers, and we don't actually need very many electrical and mechanical engineers at iFixit unless, unless people want to do documentation. Most of what we're doing is writing software, uh, creating, creating the site, supporting Dazuki, our, our uh, you know, startup company doing manufacturing documentation. Hmm. Right. Interesting. And I'm sure you guys are pretty flexible with working remotely, right? Since it's the internet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we got a lot of folks yeah. out there. Our biggest, our uh, I mean, our main headquarters is here in, we're in San Luis Obispo, California, but we've got some folks all over the world helping us. Yeah. We have an office in Stuttgart, Germany as well, and that's that's been fun. And we're in the process of localizing, translating a lot of the uh, iFixit information. We're in 11 languages now and, uh, and growing fast. That's awesome. How do you guys uh, keep quality consistent? Uh, you know, if, say you guys hire me, I'm sitting in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm a terrible photographer. Uh, if I was doing repair guides for you, would I write my manual and then send you guys a, f- a phone and my documentation and you would take pictures along the way? Or would I take a photography course? <laughs> we have lots of, of guides. So we don't, uh, when we're writing repair manuals, we do them all here in this facility because we have a standard photo lab set up and just having the lighting set up be consistent is nice for like our teardowns and the very premium content. Yeah, yeah. But you'd want the, the iPhone it, to be the best because that's the one that right. makes the rounds on all the... Right. Gadget blogs. But most of what we do, we're not generally hiring people to write repair manuals. We're hiring people that are moderating the community. Gotcha. So if you're working in Raleigh, you'd be patrolling, uh, so you'd be reviewing technical changes that somebody in South America made to a guide. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, this Nexus 5 headphone jack installation, uh, you said there were three screws, but mine had four. What's the deal? And then we got to figure out, is this a valid suggestion? Maybe they changed it, you know, mid, mid-production run, they changed the device around, or maybe this person in South America is crazy. <laughs> they actually have the Nexus 4 or something. Right. Gotcha. Right. Very cool. Would you still get a badge and a gun as a moderator? <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff badge or something? Virtual badge. Excellent. Um, so I... Forgive me, I don't have the whole iFixit site memorized, but you know, I definitely know there's there's cars and appliances and obviously gadgets of all sorts. 
Did you get anything bigger? I know uh, I've seen a lot on your blog that I follow in my RSS feed. Um, you guys are pretty into the right to repair like farm equipment and stuff. Uh, is that featured right. on the site or is that a separate venture? Yeah, we've got some John Deere uh, content. Uh, and we're, I mean, it's it's interesting kind of seeing what people are into. We, we have a little bit, farmers for the most part are able to figure things out themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've been working on right to repair, you know, it's been looking at like what are the systematic obstacles to people fixing things. Sometimes it's lack of information. Sometimes it's lack of parts. In the case of the agriculture world, what's happening is that the modern tractors have lots of software on them with specialty diagnostics, and only John Deere has access to the diagnostic software. Yeah. Is it because it's hidden behind uh, like a proprietary port, or is it just they lock yes. it down behind bootloaders or encryption or anything? Yeah, so the CAN bus is proprietary. I mean, there's there's a standard CAN bus protocol, but then there are uh, lots of proprietary extensions on top of that. Some of the newer ECUs are even encrypted, um, and the diagnostic software that they have to talk to it to you know make engine settings is only available to John Deere technicians. Yeah, at, at the cost of I'm sure thousands of dollars, if not more. They won't even sell it to you. No, oh, you so unless you, you are working for John, John Deere, Deere as guy. an authorized. Yeah. Right. They will not sell it to you. And so I've heard stories of a farmer that, you know, farmers really need access to this because if you're in the rural area, you're a couple hours away from the nearest dealer. Uh, it can be really be a challenge to get a technician out. Yeah. And time uh, is so money. That, you may not have two days to wait for a technician to come and fix your problem. Right. So I hear stories about like leave $5,000 in cash under a park bench and somebody swaps out for a laptop that has the deer diagnostic software on it. <laughs> <laughs> Like you literally have to be an employee of John Deere or whatever company this is, or like, do they do authorized repair centers too? Or? They've got authorized repair centers, okay. but there there just aren't enough of them. Yeah, um, and I'm and, sure it's hard to get going and get that certification too. There's a, a big right. barrier to entry. Right. In the case of Apple, Apple doesn't authorize any independent service centers, and so if you want to get your iPhone fixed um, uh, by somebody with an OEM part, you don't necessarily have great options. Mm-hmm. Hasn't Deere been famous for? Uh Using DMCA to go after people who, uh, yes, yeah, who who try to repair their stuff. Yes, yeah, so the DMCA is interesting. So <laughs> let me give the the quick rundown on copyright law. Uh, I won't go too deep into the legal weeds, but basically, there's a the update to copyright that law. The update to copyright that was passed in 1998 is called the DMCA of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And there's a tiny clause in there that was designed to stop DVD piracy. And it says that it's illegal to circumvent a technological protection measure on somebody else's stuff. AKA it's illegal to pick a digital lock. Right. And uh, it, pretty much any kind of digital equipment has some kind of lock to prevent you from getting access to it. So even if you built your own fancy you know, John Deere diagnostic software, uh, plug it into the tractor, if you had to bypass any kind of lock, which you probably did in order to make that, creating that software would be illegal. And John Deere says that they need these locks in place to prevent piracy on tractors. So they actually told the copyright office with a straight face that people would be pirating Taylor Swift on their tractors. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so this sounds crazy, but the tractors actually have touch screens and like play music, and it might be possible to do that. <laughs> I mean, you got to do something while you're sitting there in a pause. You got to do something fields. while yeah. you're out, right? I mean, they're self-driving. So what else are you going to do? Wait until they find out about laptops. I think you can copyright or right. copy Taylor Swift on that too. 
Correct. So uh, we went to the copyright office and said, hey, that's ludicrous. Uh, <laughs> copyright law shouldn't be getting in the way of farmers fixing their tractors. Um, I had to work with a legal clinic. I, I got some lawyers from uh, from USC to help me out. We went to a bunch of farmers, recorded their testimony, sent them into the copyright office. And after about two and a half years of effectively litigation where we were arguing for the right to be able to fix tractors, the copyright office went ahead and said, yeah, okay, we'll give it to you, but only for two years, and then you're going to have to apply again. <laughs> Wonderful. Also, wait, what? Why, I mean, why does the situation change in two years? Maybe Taylor Swift isn't poss- popular in two years. <laughs> so, so you apply for these exemptions, and every every few years they review the exemption. So they grant you a short term exemption, then every every so often you have to apply to renew it. Okay, uh, and, and that's the case. Uh, same thing for unlocking cell phones. So you have to apply for an exemption every. Um, every three years to be able to unlock cell phones. And a few years back, they de- denied the renewal request. And then you may have heard in the news that um, there was a big controversy where the U.S. was the only country in the world where it was illegal to unlock cell phones. Where it was the same law, the DMCA, actually Section 1201 of the DMCA is, is the culprit. Uh, so we desperately need to fix the underlying law. Now, the only update to the DMCA since 98 was the fix for cell phone unlocking um, that Obama signed um, uh, last year, where it uh, he it specifically made cell phone unlocking legal, but it didn't touch tractors, it didn't touch tablets, it didn't touch laptops, it didn't touch anything else. So systematically what 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 is really going on is you have laws that are like banning tinkering and banning engineering yeah uh like saying that you can't you know pick a lock like that's how all of us got started we took things apart we pick locks like that you know that's kind of the fundamentals of engineering and you've got society where they're saying well we're afraid of piracy so we're going to lock people out from doing anything and that's that's really i think a problem for a free society but it's also a problem for a society where we want to train up the next generation of engineers yeah, definitely. I mean, I never got anything to get back together properly, but I certainly took my fair share of stuff apart. You took stuff apart, <laughs> yeah. right? Absolutely. And and this phrase technological protection measure or digital lock, we've been we've been joking that if you took a DVD and you put a padlock through the center of it, you know, through the hole in the center that that might actually be a lock and that picking that lock might violate the DMCA. Like it's kind of ambiguous whether that would be a violation or not. <laughs> <laughs> Only one way to find out. <laughs> Only one way to find out. Um yeah, so you guys have made some progress. I think right now, what is it, eight states have legislation in place or it's going to be uh, ruled upon? Yeah, so we're working on right to repair uh, uh, legislation. It's through repair.org, so check out the site. Uh, there are eight states that are considering legislation, but we haven't. it hasn't been passed anywhere. So the eight states are Nebraska, New York, Minnesota, Kansas, Massachusetts, Wyoming, Illinois, and Tennessee. Um, and so all of them are considering it. There's a hearing in Nebraska in a few days, um, but it hasn't passed anywhere. And so, so what, what this would do is it would say, hey, if you're going to manufacture a complex product, you got to make service manuals and parts available. Mm-hmm. And does it say how in-depth you have to go? I mean, obviously, they're not going to tell you, you know, how to repair an LED that blew out on the motherboard, possibly. Right. Um, now, the idea is that it would just be the same information that the dealer repair shops have. So the John Deere authorized dealer that has access to parts and information would just be the same information that they have. Gotcha. So this shouldn't really be an onerous restriction on manufacturers because it's the same information they already have. It's just saying, hey, make it available to you know the, the, the consumers who have your products. Yeah. Yeah. At least allow them to isolate it to uh, you know this bearing or this this circuit boards or sensors so they can swap it out. Right. Yeah. So is the objection to this by the manufacturers, um, 
you, you can't separate legal issues and financial issues. I know that they get tied together, but I'm wondering whether it's more of we're not going to make as much profit if everybody's able to replace the batteries in their phones, or, or is it the case that if we open this up and some moron uh, does a repair incorrectly, that all you hear on the news is how our product was defective, and so now we have to worry about the the lawsuits that we're going to have to deal with because you know we we gave people the the thought that they could, might actually be able to repair their electronic equipment. Right. So that's the argument that they use is they say that it will increase their liability. Uh, but of course, people are already fixing things. And what, what I have found over the years of, of teaching people to fix things is that if, you, if, if someone's going to fix something, no matter what, they're better off with a manual. They're better <laughs> off with a guide with the opportunity to know how to do it right. Even a poorly written run is better than just guessing. Is better than guessing. And so I think that the liability actually would be lower for manufacturers if they're publishing a manual. Because if they say, hey, this was the right way to do it, and you you know, didn't follow the instructions, and you clearly did it wrong, and you had the opportunity to know how to do it right, I think that actually reduces their legal responsibility. So we see an opportunity for this to really rem, rem, uh, reduce the amount of liability that manufacturers have, uh, while at the same time increasing the amount of repairs that are happening overall. Now, I think that you hit the nail on the head where the underlying fear that they have is that this is going to undermine the planned obsolescence business model where they glued batteries into devices with a, you know, with the battery only lasts 400 charge cycles and then the phone is dead. Right. And they're very happily cashing in on you buying a new phone every time your battery stops. Yeah. Right. We're spending three fourths the price to get that repair done through them. Right. 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 Well, and, and, and I will share the, the story of my last weekend, which was that I had a, Nexus 5 phone that had served me well for about three years and uh, came home last Thursday or Friday. I guess it was earlier in the week, but but it started into a, uh, a boot loop. You know, it start to load and then uh, would turn off and start to load and turn off and get online and check around a few things. And people said, oh, it's the power button that's going out. And actually, if you if you kind of whack the side of the phone, you know, not too hard against something, you know, you can sometimes fix it. And in fact, that's what I did. I, I whacked it a few times and it was fine. Uh, and so off to work, I headed the next day and, uh, got to work and, and hit, I had, was listening to my favorite podcast on the way up and, uh, got out of the car and went into the office and all of a sudden it wasn't working yet. Went into this boot loop and I tried everything I could for a couple of days to fix that. I took it to a couple of repair places. Uh, none of them had the, the, uh, the, the power button that was required. I, I see on your site that that is out of stock at your, uh, facility, but, <laughs> but, but if you had it, it was $5. And so not being able to live too long without a phone, and not the least of, of which is I had second factor authentication for everything on that phone. So I couldn't get into mm -hmm. any of my websites, uh, you know, that I need to access. Uh, I went out and bought a new phone. And so uh, I think sort of missed in, in, uh, this conversation about the right to repair is the sort of the, uh, the moral obligation to try to find a way to make things last longer. Uh, so that we're not constantly digging up minerals and materials out of the earth uh, that we're going to turn around and throw back into a landfill. Right. Yes. I mean, it's and it's the little things that that kill you. Just availability of that one part. Uh, and and you're right. It is a huge amount of raw material that goes into manufacturing things. We, we out of um, I mean, there's over 500 pounds of raw material that goes into making a cell phone. Wow. Uh, so out of all of the elements on the periodic table, all of you engineers, you got lots of, of years of industry experience across most industries. How many uh, of those elements do you think are used in production of kind of any product, any mainstream product? 
Electronics? Uh, electronics, anything. Electronics are, are complex, yeah. right? So they have a lot There's of There's a good them. number yes. just involved in the semiconductor manufacturing of those chips. Yeah. So so there's, you know, 100 and what, 118 elements? So out of the 118 more, elements yeah. on the periodic table, yeah, I guess you get into the... The exotic ones. The unknowniums. Okay. 70-ish are used in modern manufacturing out of the 118. Out of those 70, 50 are in your phone. So the, it's, it's kind of phenomenal how many different, you know, you've got gallium and indium and neodymium, like the neodymium and the magnets in the phones. You've got cobalt and lithium in the battery, uh, gold and copper in the, in, the, in the PCB. I mean, across the periodic table, it's amazing how much is in there. And then if you're going to try to recycle that, you have to break down those elements and separate them all. And separating out 50 <laughs> elements that are in a phone next to, impossible. to a point where you get, it's next to impossible. So we can really only get 12 out of the 50 back in recycling. Hmm. So there's no way to take a truck full of old cell phones, grind them up, and make new phones out of them. Uh, the, if you can get the plastic out of them, the plastic's going to be downcycled. It's going to end up in park benches. Um, we're going to be able to get the copper and the silver and the gold and the palladium out. But things like the lithium and the cobalt and the indium are going to be completely lost in, in the slag. Why is lithium at all difficult to recycle? It, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And I think it comes down to kind of the, the chemical reaction process. I'm just told, when I talk with battery recyclers, they tell me basically nobody's recovering the, the lithium. I think it's also not that expensive relative to the weight. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of these processes, it comes down to price versus, versus ROI. Nobody recovers rare earths and recycling. And, and the metallurgists I talked to say that the price of rare earths would have to go up by about a hundred fold before it would make sense to start recycling. Them. That includes like even ne- neodymium and stuff too. Cause yeah, the neodymium and the magnets really isn't even hard drive magnets where it's a lot of neodymium. There's some like research projects. Yeah. Um, the only rare earth recycling that I know of that's happening is out of some lead acid car batteries. There's one facility in Belgium that's getting some rare earths out of it, but out of all the electronics, it just it just gets shredded. Wow, and lost in the slag. I thought maybe I read incorrectly, but I thought neodymium. I mean, obviously there's a limited amount of anything on the earth, but I thought neodymium was one that we could potentially run out of. I don't know about neodymium. Indium in the touchscreens, absolutely, we're going to run out of it sooner than later. I think mm-hmm. the projections are something like 2050, uh, and that's not recoverable. So you kind of step back and you say, wow, we've got all of these complex materials that are going into products, and then we're gluing a battery into it that only lasts 400 charge cycles. So you've got this entire complex like supply chain into this, and then we're like putting what's effectively a death clock of a battery, where everything else on the device could last 10 or 20 years, but the battery only lasts 400 charges. Yeah, that's a little ridiculous when you frame it that way. Uh, and if you look like, think about the Galaxy Note 7 recall. So the Galaxy Note 7 was not defective. The battery in some of the Note 7s was defective. So if that had had a modular battery where they could have popped out the battery, you know, gone through the ver- engineering verification process for a couple months and then sent out new batteries to everybody, uh, they wouldn't have had a problem. So that was like literally a $3 billion mistake of gluing the battery into the Note 7. And I think that the, the battery, gluing the battery in was just as big an engineering failure as, as the, uh, you know, so the, the failures that they had manufacturing the batteries themselves. Well, and a big part of it too is making it thinner, you know, and not accounting for the battery expansion. At the same time, I don't know anyone who wants a thinner phone. Right. Yeah, we've kind of hit peak thinness. 
Our calculations are that uh, if you want to make a phone thick, slightly thicker to be able to make the battery removable by the user with a back, uh, you know, panel that remove that comes off, and then a, a battery with some some slightly thicker shielding around it, it's about half a millimeter in thickness. Unacceptable. I need to be able to see mm-hmm. through my phone. <laughs> so, do you bring up all these points when you talk to uh, you know politicians and lawmakers, um, and how, how do they see it? You know, as you frame the argument. Um, what's your biggest obstacle with dealing with with those people? So the lawmakers have been hugely in favor of right to repair. Uh, you know, when when right to repair, the last one was auto right to repair, which passed in Massachusetts. So right to repair is kind of the law of the land for cars, mm-hmm. uh, and that passed uh, in in Massachusetts. Passed by eighty seven percent of the popular vote. Wow. So most people are in favor of this. The the thing that happens with politicians is that you know we get some big companies that come in and start spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt, <laughs> uh, and and they don't know. You know, nobody wants to be the first person, um, and so so that's really been the challenge. Has just been getting the ball rolling, but clearly we're seeing a lot of momentum this year. Yeah. How, how do you recommend? You know, obviously we as engineers can do our part. Of- I'm sure a lot of us support this as well, myself included. Um, what's the best way to educate people who, you know, maybe give in to that uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and are a little squeamish around tools and technology in general? Um, you know, do you find maker fairs and, you know, hands-on activities uh, work or just talking to them over coffee or something? Yeah, or just find something, like take apart the, the first thing with them. Um, so people do repair cafes or like have an event and tell, tell your friends to bring, uh, some broken stuff to the next barbecue. And then you take it apart. And the worst that happens is it stays broken. Uh, and, but you learn something along the way, you learn how to take things apart. You get a little bit less afraid of electricity. And, uh, over time we start to get a world where people are less afraid of what's inside. But I think it's up to us as engineers to counter the kind of mass consumption culture. Uh, I, I've done events at science and engineering fair festivals, places like Maker Fair, and we'll have uh, an iPod out, and kids will come by and we'll say, "Hey, do you want to take an iPod apart?" And they look at us like we're crazy, <laughs> because it turns out every adult their entire life has been telling them, "Don't take that thing apart." Kids want to take things apart, and it's like it's this artificial thing that we are we're restricting freedom of children, and and we, we we are teaching them that you shouldn't take things apart. Don't take the lamp apart. Don't take the toaster apart. You'll hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. It's electricity. It's dangerous, and we have to get past that into a world where we understand and embrace how things are put together and how they work. Yeah, that was always one of the most uh, popular booths at the Maker Fairs here in North Carolina. Was the you know, tear down booth or whatever. And I don't know if they ever had iPods or anything. I was too busy working the soldering booth to check it out myself, but I did see piles of, you know, printers and fax machines and old desktops and stuff that people could just dig into and they had tools available and everybody seemed to love it. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, we've done the same thing. It's been incredibly cool. Yeah. Yeah. Once you, once you see, oh, it's just, uh, you know, I'm not going to blow my finger off on a capacitor. I don't even know what one of those are, but (laughs) Provided it's not a high-voltage system, it's not a big deal. Right, absolutely. Yeah, you're more likely to stab yourself with a screwdriver trying to jimmy open a plastic retaining tab. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So the, the, you know, the maker movement has been fairly popular, and uh, so we have people making things. And I'm wondering if, uh, if you call your community more the, you know, the fixer community, is, is the maker community and the fixer community the same community, or, or are they distinct? 
I think there's a lot of overlap. Uh, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know the extent. I mean, I, I, I think everybody's a fixer, right? Everybody has fixed something at some point, whether it's a, a handle on a toilet, like we're all, we're all tinkering and fixing things. Right. Um, but the, the, there's a huge amount of overlap. The tools that we use are similar. You know, we're all into electronics. Um, uh, you know, the, the folks at Maker Faire tend to focus on electronics. We at iFixit tend to focus on electronics. Uh, I don't have any idea which community is bigger. At, at iFixit, we helped 94 million people fix things last year. Wow. <laughs> and then you can add to that all the people that are on YouTube learning how to fix things as well. So, like, the internet has become the place that you learn how to fix things. And I think that we've created this default assumption that you're going to be able to search on the internet and find a way to fix something, which is fantastic. And that's that's the kind of culture that we need to breed. Now we just need to work on on the details and making sure that with, when people dive in and they start to fix it, that they actually are successful and that we can keep that product out of landfills. Absolutely. So we're always working on adding troubleshooting information to the site, adding more products. You know, we try to keep up with the electronics manufacturers. They introduce a bunch of new gadgets to CES, and then we got to get them and take them apart and teach people how to fix them. Uh, we really, uh, you know, would like to be working on teaching engineers how to communicate better, how to write repair manuals in an easier, more intuitive fashion, and then get them available to everybody. I think I don't think any product should come without a service manual. Uh, so everything that I can do to help, I will. Yeah. And and on that note of uh, teaching engineers and everybody how to how to write, you guys have published your own tech writing handbook as well. Right. Yes, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's so up on the Dazuki we, website. If anyone wants right. to download it, so Dazuki it. is our software company that makes you know software for producing repair manuals, and and we went ahead and wrote. We figured, well, well let's if we're going to be like providing software, we might as well teach people how to do it. And and so I wrote. It's about. It's about 10 like friendly, easy-to-digest web pages with um, information all the way through from starting to work on, on, a pro, on a, writing a manual, whether it's a user manual or a service manual, all the way through you know, documenting it. Yeah, I found this a couple of years ago as I was you know, clicking around on the internet. And um, yeah, I've made reference to it. As an app, uh, applications engineer, I'm writing data sheets and app notes. And you know, it may not be a teardown guide, but you still have to communicate how to best use an IC in an application, uh, you know, to people who may have no idea what the heck your chip even does. Right. And, and being able to communicate clearly, I, re- I remember one of the examples that we have in here, uh, is, is from Mackie's, uh, manuals where Mackie makes, uh, audio mixers. So, you know, this is the mixing board at the back of a concert hall and it's got, you know, what, 200 dials and knobs on it. And then it's, it's a visually very intimidating product. Uh, and their manuals uh, use really good diagrams, but they also use the sense of humor all the way through it. Mm-hmm. They were very digestible. I remember it was one of the first manuals I sat down and I just read all the way through because it was funny and it was fun. And I was learning concepts as well as learning, learning uh, you know, the practical aspects of which, which cable to plug in where. Yeah, yeah, you can see that in some old test equipment uh, manuals as well for electronic stuff. I've used uh, a couple manuals I found in labs to fix equipment, and they usually have a troubleshooting section uh, and a calibration section, and the real good ones will have a system block diagram or some circuits and tell you how they did certain things. And it's, yeah, it's great. You really want to read them and see what people are doing. Right. And, and you know, one of the opportunities as we move away from uh, printed manuals, as we move away from PDFs, uh, from static documents, now we can, we can embed live uh, 
uh, elements. So you can embed video into a procedure. So if, if you need to show a calibration procedure, you can actually show the act of doing the measurement. Uh, you can embed, uh, with the Zuki, you can embed CAD documentation right into the manual. Um, so the old days of, you know, getting a thing, taking a picture of it, having, having it illustrated. Now you can go to, you design the product, you design it in CAD, you've never built one, and you can actually write the manual for it just straight from the CAD. And then down the road, once you get a physical product, take photos and augment the manual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, things are definitely getting uh, more complex and more feature-filled today, but I, I, the basics are still the same. <laughs> I know, look, looking through the handbook, uh, the two chapters I definitely use the most, uh, chapter two is being concise, and then uh, number five, knowing your audience. Um, those are the two hardest, in my opinion. Right. You know, it, it, yes. It's real easy to target at the expert and use all the industry jargon, but then you're going to lose at least 50% of the people, if not more. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about in there was our first set of manuals. You know, we wrote manuals for Apple laptops. So we had our manual, and then later I got my hands on Apple's manual, and I went ahead and ran it through the readability test. That It's actually built into Microsoft Word. You can turn on the advanced scoring, and then it'll tell you the reading level of what you've written. Oh, I didn't know that was built right uh, into Word. That's cool. Yeah, it's 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 like it's in the preferences. It's just this advanced setting, but then you can check the box, and then it gives you more than just the count of words. It'll give you more kind of cool metrics. Oh, okay. I'm not to play with that. So Apple's manual came in at a 24th grade reading level, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know I didn't know grades went that high, but I guess they do if you're if you're. <laughs> <laughs> go for your PhD or something. Um, so ours, ours, I think, came in at about the seventh grade reading level, and that was really what we were aiming for. And that's also helpful when you're going to translate it or if you're going to run it through Google Translate, like having it be in simple, common English uh, is is very important. Have you guys seen, do you know, the Turbo Encabulator video? Yes. Oh, we reference that all the time. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some of our favorite. <laughs> yeah, they're fantastic. So I think that, that that makes the point very clearly. That that's that's what we sound like most of the time as engineers. Right. So, Kyle, did you come by the ability to write these technical manuals naturally, or was there some fabulous training at Cal Poly, or, or how is it that you got to be good at it? There's actually a really good technical writing program here. Yeah. So every engineer has to take an English class focused on technical communication. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my mentor uh, in that uh, was a professor, uh, David Gillette, and he's just phenomenal. He's really good at, 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 at teaching and communicating. And he kind of goes, he's more of a practical hands-on, uh, like let's just get in and start teaching people to do something. And our thing with our manuals when we start is, hey, I'm going to write a repair procedure and I'm going to give it to somebody. We actually practiced on art students. So I take my manual that I wrote and I take a laptop and I give it to an art student and I'm like, hey, take the laptop apart. And then we'd kind of watch them and we're sitting on our hands and we're cringing as they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And you realize very quickly that any mistakes that they are making is the mistake of the documentation and not the person doing the, the procedure. Right. Yes. Yeah, I've spoken on the podcast before. One of the, the best experiences I had was on my very first co-op uh, when I was finishing my second year of school. I was working at GE Automation um, or Factory Inspection, and I was responsible for building up the first generation of text fixtures for a new product they were introducing. And after I left, it would be on the techs and uh, you know the maintenance engineers to build more of these test fixtures as needed. So I had to come up with all the documentation, the bomb, the schematic, the you know the user guide, the assembly guide. And before I had to leave, um, you know, I had to have these these guys walk through my documentation and replicate my results and give me feedback. And it, it was a, a very good experience. 
That's awesome. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of thing. I mean, you really just have to get in and do it. Uh, we spent a lot of time learning how to take photographs that like look natural and intuitive. And it turns out that I mean, you look at our photos and it looks very natural. Oh, just twist it that way. But it, it it's actually fairly uncomfortable. Sometimes you're contorting your hands into a process that doesn't look great or doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel natural, but it looks natural on camera. Hmm. Um, it's natural for people. I mean, they're doing the process and you try in the photo to actually be doing the process and your hand is twisted and it's blocking the view of the shot. Uh, so there's kind of an art form to teaching with your hands. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that's, I mean, the best possible way to learn how to do anything is to have an expert who knows how to do it, sit there and show you how to do it. And then you follow them and you do the same thing. Like that's the best way to teach. Unfortunately, that's not replicable uh, across time and space, and you're not going to always have the expert. And so having photos of their hands doing it is kind of the next best thing. Agreed. Agreed. Totally. Um, yeah, I'd, repair manuals get you so far, but sitting down with someone is definitely the best when they're an expert in their field. Right. So another resource I can recommend um, is a book called uh, On Writing Well by William Zinzer. Have you ever heard of that one before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got that floating around the office here. Yeah, I, I heard about it on one of the many 5 by 5 podcasts, um, and so I checked it out of the library. I'm about a third of the way through or so, and yeah, it's not 100% based on tech writing, but there's some really good advice in there. Um, you know, one of the first chapters is on being concise and eliminating words you don't need and shortening sentences while still maintaining your style. And I, I took it through an app note I'm writing, and I think I dropped it by... 400 words just fixing sentences that were way longer than they needed to be. Yeah, there you go. Or yeah, write it, whole write it once, just get it out there, and then write it again shorter. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As I'm putting together this app note on designing, you know, with our parts and stuff, and it, I'm like, I could easily turn, easily in quotes, you know, turn this into a textbook because there's so many things I don't want to make sure I leave out and put in. And, you know, at, at some point you got to step back and say, am I really making the point I want or am I just muddling it with extra words and, stuff I'm never really going to bring up down the road. Right. And yeah, I have a little running list of, uh, you know, topics I've crossed off and just make its own app note out of it because to try and sum it up and everything else I'm trying to do is, is going to do it a disservice and no one's going to be uh benefit from it. Right. Absolutely. Well, so Kyle, I had, uh, gone back and, and looked at a couple of the articles that you'd written outside of iFixit. Uh, it looks like you, you supply articles to a variety of uh, publications on a semi-regular basis. And uh, I, I happened to come across the one that was uh, uh, Everything Falls Apart, which was talking about entropy and, and <laughs> talking about uh, to replace or repair. And I noted this was, uh, you know, you were advocating a position in this article, uh, but I thought you did a beautiful job. I mean, just your way of presenting it and, and your phrasing, and, and it's obviously you're talented in writing. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit about why you think it's important for engineers and other technical uh, professionals to be able to communicate their ideas in writing. Well, you have to, I mean, life is all about perspective. You've got, you've got a perspective on a mechanical design. You're going to engineer a lever or a hinge and you're going to come at it. I mean, you have the constraints that, that you're given, but you're going to come at it and, and you're going to eventually Come to a conclusion, say, all right, this is the design I settled on. You're going to build it. And then it's your job to convince everybody that that's the design that, that should be used. Right. Uh, and then after you convince them, then it's your job to convince you know, or, or teach everyone who you know, how to install it, how to build it, how to, how to maintain it. 
Um, and so I think it's only a very small sliver of our jobs where we're actually doing the like core nugget of engineering that is what we study. If you think about how much of your time you're actually designing that lever uh, compared to how much of your time you spend in meetings talking about which lever to make and what materials to make it out of. And I mean, right, all everything wrapped around it, I'd say 95% of our job is the meta issues and not the actual core design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so maybe maybe artists can get away with uh, with designing you know creating art for the sake of, of art, but engineers like the point of engineering is to solve a problem, and and solving the physical problem once isn't good enough. You have to solve the problem in the product and in the context of the organization or uh, or the system that you're in. And and so your effectiveness as an engineer is is just as important. Like your communication skills are just as important as the actual quality of the design itself. Uh, so in, in the in the repair world, for us, that's been like we actually don't have any influence over the product design. Like I don't <laughs> I don't ever get a, <laughs> what I'm writing a manual about. Right. Uh, and so I feel like manufacturers make products and then they toss it over the fence to us and then we have to figure it out. And in the case of something like a Microsoft Surface, like we wrote a repair manual for the Microsoft Surface and we have people fixing it every single day. Uh, and we're working with you know a difficult situation and it's our job to take a difficult situation and, and make it possible to fix it. Right. Uh, and, and that kind of iteration and doing it over and over and over again has ma- got, made us pretty good at it. Uh, but I think that, that that's professional practice too. You create a product and then you're, you're convincing everybody in the organization to, to go with your design and then to implement the design and maintain the design. Right. And, and I, I gather from the, uh, uh, another article you'd written uh, in Harvard Business Review in 2012 that you wouldn't hire people who use poor grammar, <laughs> that you're somewhat a stickler yes. about this. This is the article I will never live down. Uh, <laughs> so I normally write about engineering. I write about cool things like entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. And then I wrote one article one time about grammar for uh, the Harvard Business Review. And it went everywhere. And it's used in English classes. And it got republished in the Wall Street Journal. Um, <laughs> I was just talking about our process of hiring people, which is I just like if I'm going to run a company. I mean, we we write repair manuals and we uh, we create software for creating manuals for manufacturing. And so the people who are in that company, everybody that I'm going to hire must also be good at communicating. And so we just decided to put a screen in for good communication skills at the beginning of our hiring process. And so the first thing you do, you come in for an interview, I sit you down, I hand you a piece of paper that's our grammar test, and I walk out. And then we score the grammar test before we continue on with the rest of the interview. Mm -hmm. And if you score below a certain threshold, like that's it, that's the end. We don't bother continuing. And it saves your time, it saves our time, and we all just move on with our lives. Okay. Does it, is it like basic grammar or do you guys start getting like really obscure? This isn't obscure grammar, like <laughs> okay. tell me, like define this tense. It's, we, we give them one, uh, we'll give them a manual that has errors and that you just correct the errors. Gotcha. So do you like have to know all the a, professional markups, you know, the red pen, no, like the... No. No, okay. You just have to figure it out. Yeah, we're not particular at all. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of you know, like okay, here's a here's a uh, you know, electrical engineering schematic. Like, tell me what's wrong with the schematic. If you can, you're a decent electrical engineer. You're at least mm-hmm. basic level. And if you can't, then you don't know anything about electrical engineering, and you need to go <laughs> get a different job. <laughs> right. And, and, nice. and I will note that if you if you go to the HBR 
uh, site to get it uh, because they chop off the title after so long. The the uh, the URL for that is uh, all the HBR stuff up front. Then I won't hire people who use poo, and it chopped off the R for poor. <laughs> Yeah, we'll never let the Earl down either. <laughs> so the other funny thing about that, I mean, you write for your for whatever medium that you're in. So we're producing, we're designing in a medium. So I, I wrote that for the web. Right. So it was all lead speak, right? It's in lead speak. <laughs> well, no, but there, there are a number of kind of contentious uh, questions around grammar. Like, can you start a sentence with a preposition? Of course you can. And the answer is, of course you can. Uh, however, you know, there's some old school folks that disagree. And so I, I'd start a sentence with a preposition and then I linked, uh, you know, the word and at the beginning of that sentence to somewhere online that explained why it was okay. And so that kind of saved me in the comments. If you look, there's something like 5,000 comments on that story. And people are like, look, he clearly knew what he was doing here. Well, fine. So then the Wall Street Journal decided to republish the article in the paper oh <laughs> and they stripped out all the hyperlinks right of course uh, of course and they didn't tell me ahead of time so i couldn't update the article to be a little bit less clever <laughs> so then i got like paper hate mail <laughs> i still i still get probably a hate email a, a month about that story my goodness people are very passionate about you, you don't want to make the grammar nazis mad man they carry right. grudges right uh so a lot of our listeners kyle are uh you know, students or people getting started on their engineering career. And they, you know, this, the idea for this episode came from a, a listener who wanted to get better at tech writing and hear more about it. Um, do you have any tips for anybody who may want to, you know, improve their writing? Is it just as simple as treating their web reports seriously? I would say just like, pick something and do it. Uh, if you can, I mean, if you can write a manual, particularly if it's not something that you have to do for work or that you have to do for school, like just sit down and, and, and do it. Uh, an easy way to practice is, I mean, I fix it's a wiki. We love having people on the site. So the next time you're fixing something, take pictures along the way to, to document the process so that you know how to put it back together. That's usually a good thing to do. And then when you're done and you get it fixed, take the pictures that you took along the process to remind yourself how to put it back together and turn those into the beginning of a manual. And it doesn't even need to be a repair manual. It could just be a disassembly manual. Like I had a espresso machine somebody gave me. I didn't really want to fix it. I was just curious how an espresso machine worked. But I took pictures along the process of taking it apart. I threw it up and I just said, this is a disassembly procedure for a Starbucks, uh, it was a Starbucks barista espresso machine. And that turned out that became useful and other people built and prepared like diagnostics on top of my disassembly procedure. Uh, but that's a great way to practice. And, and that's something, I mean, I'll, I'll spoil. Like if you apply for a job or they fix it and you're, you're wanting to be a tech writer, like as part of the interview, we're going to have you write a repair manual. Uh, and if you, if you can't do that, then you're not going to get the job. So that is this all a one day interview or is this like a, we're sending you something, come to the interview with a manual. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we generally like, we'll do the pre-screening and everything. And mm -hmm. then, and then, um, we'll, we'll do a phone call or something and then, you know, make a repair manual in your own time at home using your camera and whatever you want to work on. And then, and then we, if you do a good job, then we have a face to face interview. Gotcha. Very cool. And you know, we'll pay people for their time to, to, you know, cause you want to spend several hours on it. But, uh, that process of going through and just writing it once and then, you know, take your manual and give it to somebody and have them take it apart and kind of watch where they struggle. And, and they'll struggle on places where you use too many words. Dumb question. Where did you get a, a uh, Starbucks espresso maker? <laughs> so uh, when you run a company called I fix it, people ask you to fix stuff for them. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, 
So there was this lawyer in town. He's like, Kyle, this espresso machine, will you fix it for me? And I said, no. And that's what I do, right? Like, fix it your damn self. And he says, okay, fine. You can have it then. I was like, okay, fine. But I'm not giving so it I, back if I do fix it. Right. So I, he gave it to me and then, and then I, I, I got it and I, I you know, stuck it in the closet and forgot about it. And then like six months later, somebody said, hey, Kyle, would you fix my espresso machine? And I said, well, which one is it? And they said, well, it's a Starbucks barista. And I was like, oh, I have two of these. And so then I plug, I don't even know how espresso machines work. I don't drink coffee, but I took them and I plugged them both in. And they both did something different. So it's like, okay, supposedly neither of these make coffee, but they're both making different noises. So rule number one of fixing something is if you have two things and they are both broken in different ways, oftentimes you can get one of them working. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I started trying to pull them apart and combine different parts. And it turns out I just didn't have a good enough conceptual model of how espresso machines worked at the time to be able to fix it. But I was able to take pictures. And since then, people have actually, if you look up the Starbucks Breeze on I Fix It, you'll see it's a pretty dang good repair manual. Over 100,000 people have used it to fix things. And I got Jeez. it started, but I still don't know how to fix an espresso <laughs> machine. <laughs> Do you guys ever run into, um, you know, speaking of, acquiring things to fix and whatever um you know you guys said you'll run out and buy the latest iphone or microsoft surface but do you ever have companies send you stuff to feature on the site yeah we we work with some manufacturers we work with patagonia they wanted everybody to know how to fix all their patagonia gear and so we actually Mm -hmm. wrote a bunch of sewing tutorials that's everything from how to thread a sewing machine to how to take a patagonia jacket cut the zipper off and sew a new zipper on oh that's really cool it was super neat. And they, I mean, we thought we knew how to sew going into it and they taught us, they were like, no, no, you don't really. And so they, they <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. Step aside. Yeah. So they, they taught us how to do it the Patagonia way. And then, and then those guides I think have been very popular. Um, we work with a company called Fairphone. That's a cell phone manufacturer. We helped consult with the product design and it got a 10 out of 10 on our repairability score. And then they sent us one to write the repair manual for it. Oh, that's awesome! It's good to see companies embrace that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's uh it's and there's there's more and more companies that are partnering with us. And by the way, if any if anybody who's listening is you know designing products that you'd like to you know collaborate with us, get a repair manual and I fix it, we'd love to work with you. All right, um, we can you know include uh, contact information at the bottom if they need to. Yeah, you can just hit me on Twitter. I'm K Weens K W I E N S on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Well, Kyle, I know you have to go eat dinner soon, so we won't keep you too much longer. <laughs> um, I know I just wanted to wrap up real quick. Uh, something I saw as I was poking around in the site preparing uh, for this interview. You guys put together a series of movies, a uh, fixer documentary. I've been working on the documentary. I haven't released it yet. I've been like traveling around the world talking with people who fix things, particularly in the developing world, and I've just mm-hmm. been very impressed by how creative and clever they are. And so I've been wanting to film them and, and turn it into something. And yeah, it's kind some, of one of those. There's some small films available I saw. Yes. Yeah, we've put out some trailers and, and a little bit of it. But the hope is to put together some larger documentary at some distant future date. Definitely be something I'd add to my Netflix queue. Okay. So I have a question for all of you. So I want to know what, what, what do all of you think I fix is missing? What should we be adding to the site? What nuggets of engineering knowledge should every fixer know? Or is there a particular device that you'd really like to see us cover that we don't right now? I have never searched your site for a device that you didn't have. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if... I guess that makes me feel better. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that's the goal is to be completely comprehensive with everything. Um, 
We have. I have an outstanding prize. So the 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 like the one thing that we have never figured out how to fix. If anybody can figure it out and post a repair guide, I would be forever indebted. Is a slinky. Hmm. <laughs> well, you got to talk to Egon, but that's a little bit difficult these days. Yeah. So if anybody can figure that out, I would I would love to know. Fix it as in like someone snipped it or it's no like how do you untangle a slinky <laughs> and get it right? Okay. Pretty much when you got into the plastic range and stretched it out, it's a little hard to get it to go back into its original form. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking the original metal slinky, right? I've got one in my desk at work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tangle it up and then take some pictures of the <laughs> reverse process. Well, if, if any of you I mean, or anyone who's listening, you see you're like, oh, I fix it would be great, but you just don't have typewriter repair or whatever it is that you're into. Like the next time you do something, take some pictures, upload it to the site. The whole site's a wiki. We'd love to have you on board. Uh, the community would love to interact. Um, same thing with troubleshooting. We've got a really thriving, active troubleshooting forum. Fantastic. Perfect. Yeah, I was not prepared for your question. I'm trying to think here if there's ever something I ran into on the site that I really need addressed. I did just look. No KTM motorcycles. That's true. We don't. We'd love to do that. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's just going to take, what we need to do is find some dirt bike forum that's really into it. Uh, yeah, my dad actually ran a, uh, a dirt bike dealership, uh, for a long time. So I grew up with, with dirt bikes, but, uh, we don't, we don't have anything. That'd be cool. Yeah. I, I have a KTM, uh, Super Duke, uh, 990 and there is nothing like trying to replace the battery on that motorcycle. <laughs> It was yeah. it was like they designed it specifically so you'd break about three hundred dollars for the plastic in order to get to just it. to try to get to it. And of course, the battery is not a common component you'd want to get to. Yes, and it, <laughs> it, they don't wear out in a reasonable amount of time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we we see this a lot. So that'd be cool. So what we should do is like get get some of the common bikes added, and then and then reach out to some of the the dirt bike forums and see if enthusiasts. A lot of times, there's already DIY tutorials on some of the specialist forums. The mm-hmm. problem is it's on some BHBBB forum somewhere, and they upload the photos to Bitbucket, and then they ran out of bandwidth or something, and the photos aren't there anymore. And they were also writing it for other enthusiasts, so that it's not right. in layman's terms. So we need to get it get it into a wiki, get it into a standard format, and then make it possible for people to clean up the language and make it more accessible. I, I got one for you, just because it came up a couple months ago. Um, the in vacuum cleaner repair, you're missing the uh, the Miley vacuums, if that's how you pronounce it. M I E L E. Mila, Mila would be great. Yeah, as we're we're doing more. You should work with the vacuum guy on Reddit. There you go. He's awesome. Yes. Now, I don't yeah. know if he knows. That. Does, is he a repair guy or is he a sales guy? No, he's a he's a full he's a vacuum repair cleaner repair guy. Okay. I should track him um, down. You're right. Yeah. His his Reddit username is Touch My Blank and Coffee. Okay. Uh, but not blanking. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, he's a legend. Reddit. Yeah. He's actually, a legend. that's how I fixed my vacuum. Was it was all the head unit was all clogged with hair, and I yeah. how to disassemble it wasn't completely obvious. And I asked on some of the DIY Reddit forums, and someone said, "Why don't you just ask the source?" And they gave me his username and a. He messaged me back and told me what to do. There you go. Yeah, we need to get get that extracted out of his head. Yeah, that's a good idea. I should uh, I should get on that. We're not great with home appliances yet. We oh yeah, that's bit. that's totally hit or miss. There's so many different brands. Yeah, but he's already someone that's kind of well known. He was on the Reddit podcast when they were doing that a while back, and he's got a following. And you guys could do a vacuum week or something. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> ah, I it's like springtime, it. spring cleaning. <laughs> Boom. There you go. Vacuum All on right. the front page. I will. I'll I'll get right on that. Excellent. My check will be in the mail then, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I'll send you a vacuum bag. Perfect. I'll send you my model number. Well, hey, thanks for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you for coming on. We we really appreciate you giving us your time. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners or any way you'd prefer them to get in touch with you? I know you said Twitter works. You're always on there. Uh, we yeah, got Twitter you. works great for us where I fix it and, and I'm K Weens on Twitter. Um, but I'd say like, just like take something apart, take some pictures, start documenting. It's, it's not near as hard as you'd think it would be. It's a chance to practice your communication skills and maybe teach somebody else something that, that you know that maybe they don't. Can say it better myself. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thank you. All right. Thanks again. Good evening. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>